an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, for someone who thinks they know enough to give a lecture on Kierkegaard, there's two ways to begin. The temptation is to launch into about a 20-minute background check on Kierkegaard, his life and its events and how they relate to his thought because they're more closely intertwined than almost any other thinker, his relationship to his father, his relationship to Regina, the girl he almost married, to the Danish state church and the old bishop he revered, uh, his personality traits, his almost morbid privacy, his lifelong reaction against Hegel's philosophy and his exaggerations and extremes in response to Hegel, uh, the status of the books he writes under pseudonyms, many of them, uh, the perspectives he gives on his own work in various reflections, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to jump right in and in the deep end and if some of these things come up along the way or in discussion, fine, but in, in, in any case we'll jump right in. So I'm uh, working on uh, the themes of time and the idea of oughtness, of being called, of uh, there being an ought in a person's life, a, a way they ought to be. Uh, and I want to reflect on that in relation to Kierkegaard's notion of the stages on life's way, which is the title of one of his books, uh, but the notion of the stages runs throughout all his works and not only in that book. And so first, time and the stages. Now some have argued, like James Collins in his book The Mind of Kierkegaard, that Kierkegaard failed to grasp the meaning of time, especially the significance of historical time, which should flow from a belief in Christianity. And we're not going to get it directly into that, some truth there perhaps, but uh, I would say that the value of time for Kierkegaard is always in its relationship to eternity. And it's certainly true that Kierkegaard consciously rejected the grandiose perspectives of history that he thought to be characteristic of Hegelian philosophy. However, that's not to say that Kierkegaard didn't have a very distinct view of time and one that's rich in meaning for one's own self-understanding, growth, maturity, and ultimately for an understanding of the process of conversion, which is always the central existential interest of Kierkegaard. Now, note at the outset that Kierkegaard did not concern himself with time as a metaphysical category of analysis. Rather, he wishes to probe the existential attitude of man toward time and the implications of the fact that man exists in time. The contemplation of the grandiose sweep of history as a whole, like Hegel, is rejected for the sake of concentrating on the history of the individual. And we'll try to indicate the importance of Kierkegaard's view of time and defend him against the charge that his thought was in some way atemporal. Now, not only is man brought to the moment of decision in time, but it's also a sort of against the background of time that the validity of Kierkegaard's different stages on life's way is tested. And so we can begin our study of the individual's growth to understanding and the nature of conversion with his delineation of three stages or levels of human existence. Now these stages are not meant to be like childhood, adolescence, adulthood, as if you just go through them all in separate times of your life. Rather, they're in us all the time as possibilities. We can revert to one or the other. They're sort of uh, co-temporaneous with one another, and you can drift in and out of one or the other, but eventually, for full maturity, you need to move through the three. And the three, as he describes it, are the aesthetic stage, the ethical stage, and the religious stage. Now, by aesthetic, he doesn't just mean having to do with uh, high beauty or something like that. He means it in a much broader sense. Uh, he means being in a state of mind in which the enjoyment of the moment takes first place. And there may be many different possible levels to that. Uh, in, enjoyment sensually, artistically, intellectually, various possibilities, but the focus 
is on the immediate enjoyment of the moment. And pursuits on this level, he says, involves what he calls immediacy uh, and enjoyment as a sort of an immediate desire in relation to things. Um, and he, he calls it immediacy and stresses just the enjoyment because one can go through these moments of pleasure or thrill or interest without being personally involved, by which he means without any real personal commitment. In other words, if you're just living for the pleasure of the moment, there's no commitment implied. Uh, and so you're not really involved in life to the degree required for the ethical and religious stages, for ethical or religious commitment. And so the aesthetic is living for the enjoyment of the moment. Now the ethical involves a, a deep commitment in life over time, a commitment to objective universal norms and obligations binding over one's whole lifetime. And then religious implies not just living in this particular moment, nor even for lifelong commitment to ethical ideals, but the religious stage implies a transcendent personal relationship with God each moment and over the whole of one's life, throughout time. Now conversion for Kierkegaard, <clears throat> ultimately the one thing necessary for each of us, is a concrete act of an individual making a choice in time and being drawn to that choice by a sense of urgency and obligation. <clears throat> and so the stages can be divided into sections on their relationship to time and the ought in the life of the person. And movement through the stages involves eventually at some point a rejection of aesthetic time, of just living for the joy of the moment, in favor of the type of time in which decision is urgent. In other words, not just drifting through life looking for things to distract or thrill or enjoy, uh, uh, but uh, rather uh, something worth committing to. Uh, but even there, you see, he says that even a commitment we might think is worth a lifelong uh, decision about, uh, in terms of a commitment to a cause, a person, like in marriage, uh, a set of values, moral values. Uh, he says even there, to move from the aesthetic to the ethical, to lifelong commitment, uh, needs to be further supplanted by the discovery that uh, no matter what ideals we commit to, the self without God is still in despair. And we'll try to unfold that as we go. And so he tries to show the limits of the aesthetic and the ethical in order to lead the reader toward a decision about God. And um, <clears throat> he wants to unfold the factors which lead the person toward the moment where uh, conversion becomes um, a necessity and an obligation. Uh, and Kierkegaard, in his analysis, tries to close off all escape avenues from the confrontation which would lead to a genuine decision about God and ultimately about Christ, not just God in general, but about Christ. Now how so? Well, he, he tries to show that there's an underlying despair revealed through the stages driving us on uh, to face and make an ultimate decision about religious conversion. And he thinks each stage has its own indicators of difficulty of upset, of resistance, of despair. Now time, he says, resists the aesthetic stage eventually uh, by threatening boredom. Uh, that this threat of boredom is what's lurking behind the search for constant immediate distraction or enjoyment. And he says time also reveals the limitations for the struggler for moral perfection, the ethical stage, because uh, the one who's made a turnaround and made a commitment ethically still has a problem. He cannot erase the guilt of the past. What does he do with it? Nor, if you project into the future, can you ever believe 
that you're going to perfectly achieve the moral ideal that is absolutely required. And so you have deficiencies in the past and deficiencies in the future right to the end. What do you do with those deficiencies? But time, while it reveals these deficiencies, he says, also reveals eternity to the man who makes the final leap into the religious stage. Uh, now further, each stage includes its own view of time, which either blocks or fosters um, the movement of the person toward what he considers the requirement of conversion. So what is time for the esthete? Uh, in his own language, he says, it is the space of mood and the bearer of possibility. And for the refined Kierkegaardian esthete, pleasure is not mere sensual gratification, but it's rather any kind of delight that's based in a life unburdened by commitment and therefore unburdened by predictability. Predictability and routine and what's going to come again tomorrow, that's all considered boring on the aesthetic stage. You want variety and difference, you see. And so in Either Or, uh, in the volume one, the Either, page 19, he says, quote, What portends, what will the future bring? I do not know, I have no presentiment. When a spider hurls itself down from some fixed point consistently with its nature, it always sees before it only an empty space wherein it can find no foothold, however much it sprawls. And so it is with me, always before me an empty space. And that's sort of his image of the esthete, you see. Nothing you're committed to tomorrow or the next day or the next moment, always open to the variety and the thrill. And so the time category most accentuated in the aesthetic stage is precisely the moment or the instant, living for the moment. And so he says in the Either Volume 1, quote, the more the personality disappears in the twilight of mood, so much the more is the individual in the moment. And this again is the adequate expression for the aesthetic experience. It is the moment. Uh, now, the, the one big moment of enjoyment or thrill then here sort of represents a, a mock eternity. Uh, uh, because while the moment appears to be so important, nonetheless, the very next moment it's all over. The supposedly all-important big moment of thrill or enjoyment is all over the next moment and, there, and has no meaning in terms of ongoing commitment in life. Again, that's from the Either, page 19, 141. And again, from the concept of dread, Kierkegaard says, quote, Instead of learning to grasp the eternal, one learns only to kill, that is, chase the life out of oneself and one's neighbor with fatigue by chasing the instant. If only one can join the party, if merely on a single instant one can lead the dance, then one has lived. You see, whatever ideal the person might have that they think would be all important. Um, now, in the aesthetic stage, um, what you might call love takes the form of seduction or lust, uh, as in the figure of Don Juan, Don Giovanni, uh, which Kierkegaard uses in either or and other works. And this notion of seduction or lust is defined by its relationship to time. He says in the either, Don Juan, quote, exists only in the moment, but the moment is its conception, uh, in its conception is considered the sum of moments, and so we have the seducer. What he means by that is, you know, what the seducer is after is that moment of conquest, and it may take weeks to build up to that to get the girl to agree, and all that time, it seems to be commitment over time, but it's not like an ethical commitment. It's just the, the enjoyment of planning the conquest and then getting the conquest. It's still just the build up to the one moment. And so, Ioannis the seducer, a character created by Kierkegaard in either or, although his seduction is on a more intellectual level in some way, he also just lives for the moment. 
He boasts of being willing to spend every moment of his time building things up for the moment of conquest. And the future of Cordelia, his seduced fiance, afterward means nothing to him uh, because he doesn't live in ethical time, but only in the aesthetic time of the instant. Everything that replies, implies responsibility uh, over time is viewed as merely habit, limitation, routine, shackles to be avoided. Uh, because uh, what, what future could be as great as the experience given in that moment of conquest, you see? Now, indeed, I would say the aesthete, Kierkegaard would say, the aesthete at the peak of his powers is often a difficult man to convert. Um, if he seems to be just completely enjoying his life. See? And so I think of a figure like um, Charlie Sheen in Hollywood these days, you know, who's constantly got two or three girls on each arm and he's blowing his mind with cocaine and he just seems to be enjoying life to the fullest compared to us you know, routine guys who go to work and other things like that. And so it's hard to convert. You see? Another example would be if you know of blessed Charles de Foucault, who ended up one of the greatest ascetics in the history of the church. He didn't have one follower because nobody could live the life he lived. He went out in the middle of the Sahara Desert and lived by himself as a hermit. And people came out to try to follow him and gave up. But originally, he was a complete libertine. He inherited a fortune when he was a young man uh, and was in the French Foreign Legion in the south of France. And he didn't like the fact that it wasn't Paris and so he imported cigars from Cuba and champagne from Paris, and that wasn't enough. So he bought an entire brothel and moved it down next to his army base, you see. And then they just partied. And there's one famous phrase where one of his fellow officers says, if you've never seen Foucault in his silk pajamas with the little green frogs on them, with a cigar in one hand and champagne in the other and a girl under each arm, then you've never seen a happy man. And so at the height of that kind of stage, it doesn't look like there's anything there to convert. The person doesn't have any sense for conversion. But eventually, when Foucault uh, was sent to the Sahara Desert with the French Foreign Legion and experienced more hardship and noticed the religious commitment of the Muslims and the life they led, that's what sparked his interest in some other way of life. But he eventually discovered not just Muhammad, but Christ and Catholicism. And, became a, a great a blessed. I think he's already a saint. But in any case, um, the, the man who seems to be simply enjoying himself, uh, it's hard to convert, you see. But Kierkegaard would say it's the ongoing experience of life that has the possibility of changing him, not arguing with him at the moment, you see. And so Kierkegaard, in the either-or and other works, tries to unfold those elements in the aesthete's experience which would open the door toward possible change and conversion. He tries to unfold problems shining through the supposedly carefree, unencumbered, enjoyable life. And the problem is, you see, that over time, ordinary daily time rebels against being treated as a mere means for momentary enjoyment. And its protest is experienced as boredom or the threat of boredom. So in the either, Kierkegaard says, quote, a misdirected search for diversion conceals boredom within its own depths and gradually works it out toward the surface, thus revealing itself as that which it immediately is. That, I said the either, that may have come from the or, the response to the either. These were two books he wrote depicting the first two stages. Now Kierkegaard offers... Uh, interesting images of the aesthete's true condition. He says, quote, When one skims a stone over the surface of the water, it skips lightly for a time. But as soon as it ceases to skip, it instantly sinks down to the depths. So Don Juan dances over the abyss, jubilant in his brief respite, but he's dancing over despair. Now, in 1848, in a more direct communication in his Christian discourses, Kierkegaard wrote that, quote, 
The pleasure-loving man whose motto is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, thinks that he lives in today. But really he is so in dread of tomorrow and death that he has to cast himself into wild befuddlement in order to forget it. He adds later in the same book, quote, Pride slays its own master, but the temporal is just as ungrateful. It comes to something by stealing the strength of eternity from a man, and by way of requital, it remains with him and makes him its slave. Uh, what is clear is, according to the sickness unto death, that the esthete lives in a fantasy world of possibilities where there's no room for obligation, for the ought of con conversion as long as he remains at that point. And thus, in the concluding unscientific postscript, Kierkegaard writes that every moment of the aesthetic existence is wasted. It's wasting time as long as the person fails to make a decision that there's something worth living for other than just my enjoyment. In other words, the aesthetic stage leaves a person just drifting and ultimately killing time or wasting time. Now, one has to be slightly beyond a given stage and still not blinded by it to understand or benefit from Kierkegaard's analysis of it. And so, as I say, an aesthete in full swing would, would only see the, sort of the positive elements in Kierkegaard's analysis of it. Yeah, let's live for the day, you know. Uh, it's, but it's the person already in the throes of despair or the beginnings of such doubts uh, who might be able to see the shallowness of the aesthetic stage and be ready to be impressed by the answer, the or part of the either or. And this involves the ethical analysis of the aesthete, looking at that aesthetic life from the point of view of lifelong commitment, uh, which offers the promise of a different kind of life. But Kierkegaard is at pains to sort of describe the emotions of the aesthete well and the positive draw that that image of life might have uh, to try to ensure that people in that stage will pay attention to his book and hopefully, by the clues he lays down, see through the superficiality of a given stage. This is one of the goals of his manner of communication, what he calls indirect communication. Turning then from time in the aesthetic to time in the ethical stage, one shifts from a world without an ought to the arena where time is the place and the matrix of actions and decisions that matter for a whole life. And so, in the, well, in the aesthetic stage, time assumes its meaning only as present moment. In the ethical stage, time assumes the normal contours of present, future, and past. Uh, the present is the moment of resolution or decision or commitment. The future is the challenge or the task. Uh, the past involves gratitude that you've been brought to this point, but also guilt over what you might have done previously. Now the task, according to sickness unto death, is to do the required uh, finite action in this present moment, but with a kind of infinite resolution and with some sense of the eternal in light of the fact that the individual stands before an unchanging moral law in the ethical stage. And so there's something raised above time here, which means that all the time that passes between great moments or peak moments, uh, the normal everyday time, which is the, the cause of, of despair for the board of esthetes, um, for the ethical man, that normal everyday time is filled with the great task of making the eternal gradually grow in the temporal. And for that reason, the importance of the present moment still exists, uh, as the character of Judge William is at pains to prove in the or, which is his response to the either, and Judge William again in, in the save, uh, stages on life's way, um, so the importance of the moment still exists, 
but rather than being a sort of a false idol to live for the moment, each moment is a new beginning in the ongoing process of making the, the, the good real. And so for the aesthete, a sort of a pseudo-eternity meets time in the great moment you're aiming for. But for the ethical man, eternity expresses itself in continuity over the years. In other words, once life is viewed in terms of duty, the duty of making the moment have a history, then every moment has an eternal significance as part of the process of moral striving. Now, Kierkegaard characterizes the ethical stage by marriage then. It's one moment of great commitment, but extending over a lifetime and a challenge to live every day. Uh, and so he contrasts marriage as representative of the ethical stage with the love affair or the seducer as the representative of the aesthetic stage. And he explains the difference in terms of time uh, in the or. He says, quote, what richness of modulation in the matrimonial mind in comparison with the erotic, the seducer. It re-echoes not only in uh, the seductive eternity of the instant, not only in the illusory eternity of fantasy and imagination, in other words, it breaks through those, but in the eternity of inner consciousness, in the eternity of eternity, unquote. And so he says, only in marriage vows can that moment of first love gain the right to a history. And he describes marriage as that in which, quote, the eternal has the temporal within itself. That's in the or. Now, sometimes Kierkegaard becomes so eloquent about the ethical stage of lifelong commitment that one forgets it's not the end. It's not an end in itself. In fact, it's the function of the past in terms of how to deal with past gift or past thanksgiving um, that propels the ethical man toward the religious stage as well as the limits uh, that I face in the future. But in, if the past moments have been filled with failure to realize the moral call, then the question is, where do you find courage to go on? Uh, how do you face your past failings? And on the other hand, where thanks are due in looking back on your past and having been led to this moment and this possible future, where deep thanks are due in looking back on your life, there can be no real gift unless there's a gift giver. And it's, so it's the moment, uh, it's the knowledge of love as a constantly received gift of God which provides this eternal element uh, grounding marriage in time, and without which marriage or the ethical, the lifelong committed life, can be in danger of settling back into an extended routine state which the esthete mocks. And so, for instance, Lord Byron, who was a famous love poet but a seducer, he has a famous line where he says, love is heaven, marriage is hell. That's the, the attitude of of the aesthete, that lifelong commitment robs it of all its fascination, you see. And the, the ethical responds, no, that's not true, but it needs the religious to help reground it. Now, more essentially, however, Kierkegaard says, while the ethical might satisfy our need for meaning over life, for a meaningful time, for finding something worth living for and committing to, he says, the ethical stage alone does not satisfy our desire or potential for eternity. That's in works of love. And again, in the concluding unscientific postscript, Kierkegaard laughs at his own character, Judge William, for being a little too enthusiastic about the ethical stage. Why? Because, he says, Judge William seems to leave out the possibility of a religious collision. Uh, such as that of the character of Quidam in, in, in uh, Stages on Life's Way. A religious collision over the guilt or thanksgiving that, is, that I have to face about my past or over the limits of time in the future, the uncompleted ethical demands uh, which will still be imperfect when I die. 
So what do I do about past guilt? To whom do I give thanks for past favors? How do I answer the problem that no matter how long I live, or how much of a future I have, I'll never complete or perfect the moral task to which I'm absolutely called. And so in this way, Kierkegaard tries to show for all its greatness, for all its transcendence of the mere aesthetic stage, there's still a hidden problem and a hidden despair behind the ethical stage considered by itself. Thus we come to time in the religious stage. And it's important to see how time is accentuated in the religious sphere marked by the decisiveness or the ultimate nature of conversion, the decision to convert, to believe in Christ, of the conversion experience and what follows from it. Now, in addressing religious time, he tries to show that in a way it's a kind of a synthesis of all that's good in both the ethical and the aesthetic stages or relation to time, uh, implying that the religious stage transcends both but reclaims the good in both. And so he says the poetic exaltation of the moment is freed from its irresponsibility by being linked to the ethical seriousness about concrete time, and, and yet ethical commitment over a lifetime is made still more profound and passionate by taking its starting point from the moment with a capital M, by which Kierkegaard means the moment of the incarnation in which time and eternity meet. Uh, and so through its relationship to eternity, every instant being in communication with God, time, both in the instant and in the flow of the years, becomes unified uh, in a fruitful dialogue of past, present, and future. But the, the, the individual moment is lo not lost in the succession over years because not only one's whole life but every single moment of it relates to eternity. Uh, see, this is the problem, again, that the aesthete challenges the ethical man about. You know, I'm living for the enjoyment of the moment. You claim you're living for you know, some great accomplishment over the years, but in the process of getting there, you fall into routine and boredom. Kierkegaard thinks that's answered by the fact that not only your whole life before ethical absolutes but your life before Christ and each moment with Christ makes both the moment and the succession uh, existentially important. So the present is the hour of salvation in which repentance for the past and hope for the future are joined together. And his point is that the past, and especially past guilt, if it's not brought into a positive relationship to eternity, then that past overshadows the present and the future. And so in Sickness Unto Death, he says, quote, every unrepented sin is a new sin, and every moment it's unrepented is a new sin. If that sounds a little extreme, that's the way Kierkegaard likes to talk, to drive you on. Redemption then implies that time is real. The past act and its resulting guilt are real, but then so is repentance. One deed in time, like the repentance of the good thief at the crucifixion, can change the meaning of time in his life for, in all directions. So eternity penetrates time in the religious stage through the redemption of our sinfulness and through the acceptance of suffering and the cross because in the religious stage you leave the temporal in God's hands. And so time and eternity mingle in the religious because the moment of conversion becomes concrete in the acceptance of the providence of all things that happen. You're leaving it in the hands of God now. But there's a double conception of the future in the religious stage. One must hope for the future which is heaven, but also for the fulfillment of God's promises in time. And so Abraham, our father in faith, is nothing if he does not hope for Isaac in time. This is what he go, Kierkegaard goes into in Fear and Trembling. 
And this positive attitude toward the earthly future, that God will be with us there too providentially, uh, takes Kierkegaard out of the camp of the strictly otherworldly. He's not trying to leap into eternity. Faith implies not just the eternal, but grounds for hope in time as well. For example, in his journals, Kierkegaard, always self-perceptive and self-critical, accuses himself of not having had enough faith to marry Regina, his young fiancée, and refers to the fact that where he failed was the, in the faith that God could help him in his future time on earth. See, he recognizes that as a failure in himself. Now, the reason for the dynamic or living, ongoing living character of religious time is that it's chained or related to uh, what he calls the paradox, I would call the mystery of the Incarnation. Um, because for Kierkegaard, especially in his early, earlier works, um, the Incarnation is not so much described as God becoming man, but he tends to look at it as eternity entering time. And so Howard Hong, who was the translator and did the introduction to Kierkegaard's work, The Philosophical Fragments, comments that, quote, the ultimate contradiction of existence is the eternal in time, not the eternal as coming into being, uh, that's more Hegel, you see, but um, as coming into temporal spatial existence with its particularity and contingency, the incarnation, unquote. After this event, as far as Kierkegaard is concerned, all time is contemporaneous with Christ. And as Kierkegaard points out in the Philosophical Fragments, and therefore to have faith in Christ is to be his contemporary. Now the, the one, the actual contemporary time-wise, we're always contemporary with our current time, with our present age. But the actual contemporary time-wise might not have recognized Christ. And thus he becomes a non-contemporary in the deeper, more essential sense. So as Louis Dupree notes in his book, Kierkegaard as Theologian, quote, God's grace reaches each man directly and individually. Therefore, the time of Christ's coming is neither past, the period of the gospel, nor future, the parousia, but the present. In existential terms relative to conversion, contemporaneity is a crucial demarcation between the aesthetic and the truly religious viewpoints toward God. Uh, the point is that the past, you see, is not an immediate reality for me the way the present is. The present moment has a certain priority. And thus every man can be, Kierkegaard says in Training in Christianity, Every man can be a contemporary with the age in which he lives, and then with one thing more, with Christ and with Christ's life on earth. For Christ's life on earth, sacred history, stands for itself alone outside history. This is where Kierkegaard is sometimes accused of being atemporal, and he doesn't do justice to the history of the church and things like that. But still he has a point about being a contemporary with Christ. Now, the time concept which characterizes the religious stage or the religious man after conversion is Kierkegaard's notion of repetition. Now, again, the repetition was a book he wrote, but it's also a concept that per permeates his thought in many other ways, not just in that book. And the idea behind the repetition is that the now of conversion must be repeated again and again and deepened again and again, and not just in other occasional great moments, but daily in the life of the Christian. Uh, and so his analysis here is an attempt to bring the day-to-day -day life into vital relationship with God uh, and Christ, and thereby to save the present moment from the despair of killing time, or from a false interest in the next day as a distraction from today. Again, a problem for the aesthete. And so in his Christian discourses, Kierkegaard says, to live thus, to cram today with eternity and not with the next day, 
the Christian has learned and continues to learn from the pattern, that is, the life of Christ itself. And so the repetition then is the daily reconsecration of the self in silence and in solitude to the redeeming of time. He says this in his book, Authority and Revelation. So to summarize the relation between time and the stages, this is from Swenson's book, Something About Kierkegaard. He says, quote, For the aesthetic life, time has no fundamental significance. Enjoyment culminates in the moment, and for the aesthetic view, the happy moment is everything. The ethical life accentuates time as a necessary medium of a history and a solution for the permanent. Religion in general, that means outside Christianity, Kierkegaard always makes that distinction, religion in general emphasizes time still more strongly by intensifying the significance of the transformation that may occur in it but not decisively, that is, not in full truth, while, Kierkegaard would say, Christianity uniquely emphasizes time paradoxically by making the temporal commensurable for an eternal decision." Unquote. Now, a few conclusions concerning the original question as to whether Kierkegaard considered time to be important. First, the human attitude toward time plays a crucial role in Kierkegaard's theory of the stages. The fact that Kierkegaard was not concerned with Hegelian world historical time in no way negates the concern he had about the temporal as a basic testing ground of individual growth. Progression through the stages involves an ever-deepening appreciation of what time means. Whereas for the aesthete, only the moment of thrill or conquest or pleasure exists, for the ethical man, time is the place of ongoing moral action, and for the religious man, time is his salvation in terms of his relation to the moment of the incarnation. And thus daily time is the medium for sanctification in personal relation to God through Christ. But the choice Kierkegaard presents is not really between time and eternity, but the choice between time and eternity together compared to time alone or a false eternity alone. And so in the postscript, Kierkegaard says, Christianity puts man between time and eternity in time, unquote. It's time which is the most important mediator between God and man, for it's in time that God teaches us about himself and about us and about our God relationship. And this is why Kierkegaard tends not to be drawn toward the mystical approach to God. He's afraid that it allows too easy an escape from temporality and the finite. He wants to stress that conversion is not the temporary entrance into eternity in mystical moments by privileged souls, but that conversion is a necessary step in the becoming process of every man. Now here, a temporalist may not be satisfied and may still claim that Kierkegaard's time is reduced to just a means for reaching eternity and thus has no value in itself, his concept of time. And yet, in Kierkegaard's schema, the need to relate the temporal to the eternal gives significance to each moment and each thing and person and situation in the moment in a way that is lost if time is understood as an end in itself. Thus, to make the acceptance of temporality an essential relationship to eternity, as Kierkegaard did, cannot be considered to be an atemporal view. To this way of affirming time, Kierkegaard was totally and even joyously committed. And so in the OR, he says, quote, It is precisely the greatness of the finite spirit that the temporal is assigned to it. The temporal is the greatest of all gifts of grace. For man's eternal dignity consists in the fact that he can have a history, implying the level of personal subjectivity. The divine element in him consists in the fact that he himself, if he will, may impart to this history continuity transformed and translated from necessity to freedom. It seems to me as if one had only to say this aloud to a man to make him envious of himself.
All right, now moving on to the ought uh, and the stages. And so I think, as you see already, it's insufficient to explain the stages only in terms of time. They're just as frequently unfolded in terms of the self and its freedom, uh, my use of my subjectivity, subjectivity, my personal powers, as the person faces the call to goodness or the call to God and conversion. And so if time is the medium of conversion, the self and its freedom is the subject of conversion. And therefore, time can also be described as the medium of freedom. The use of time by the aesthete frittering it away or living for the moment indicates a refusal to take his freedom seriously, to take any kind of responsibility seriously. As Dupre says in his work, Kierkegaard as theologian, quote, the aesthete never commits himself and thus never becomes a self since the self is essentially a choice, an active relationship to oneself, unquote. In contrast, the ethical stage involves freedom taking itself seriously, the person giving himself to the promotion of ethical values and feeling bound by them as a law. And so to transgress the ethical is conceived as an opposition to one's true self. This presupposes a distinction between the genuinely ethical man and someone whose ethical behavior is merely conventional, merely out of social habit, because the latter would not really see the ultimate and eternal significance of the ethical and therefore would not be propelled into problems about guilt and despair and conversion by failure to abide by what he considered a mere convention. Now, although ethics is defined by Kierkegaard in either-or and in Stages on Life's Way, he defines ethics as duty. In his later writings, the emphasis shifts to love. Even in the early works, the duty displayed in the personality of Judge William is not marked by sternness only, but by humor. And this is part of the happiness characteristic of the ethical man. And so even here, it's not just a dry, Kantian duty for duty's sake. Other reasons given for the happiness or contentedness of the ethical man are his own ability of self-control or self-mastery, as well as his participation in the universal. And so his life is good. And yet, this good life in, of the ethical man by itself is still in startling contrast for Kierkegaard to the life of the man of faith or the hero of faith as described in his work for self-examination. The ethical man's conversion, therefore, has to involve a break in self-contentment due to his awareness of his inability to live up to the absolute norms of universal ethics, both in the past and in the future. This is why the religious stage is ushered in by a period of despair in which self-knowledge reaches an acuteness sufficient for the ethical man to become aware of his need for God's help at every instant. And so there's a category still more crucial in analyzing the relation of the stages to conversion, the category of the ought. Um, the discussions of time and of the self so far show how one not yet converted or facing the seriousness of the question of conversion escapes from uh, the deepest categories of time and is in despair with regard to the self if he's leading only in the ethical or the aesthetic stage. Um, now, psychologically, that might propel a person on to think about the religious, but that doesn't yet explain the obligation of conversion. It might point toward the wisdom of, of the, the question or the answer, but it doesn't explain the obligation. And I think it's Kierkegaard's insight into this religious oughtness, uh, which I think is the most distinctive element of his philosophy of religion, distinguishing between conversion as an option and conversion as a response to the thou shalt. And so in Sickness Unto Death, he says, quote, It is unbelievable what confusion has invaded the religious sphere 
since in man's relationship to God there has been abolished the thou shalt. This thou shalt ought to be part of every definition of the religious. Accordingly, this section will be divided into the following considerations, just two. The ought, as dependent on Kierkegaard's conception of time and the self, and then secondly, the relationship between the ethical ought and the religious ought. And so first, his notion of oughtness is very much related to his conception of time. Time is the medium of conversion, the self is the subject, the object of decision is God or Christ. And the relationship between man and God, subject and object, is the ought. And so Kierkegaard thinks there is a call or a demand or an ought of faith addressed to uh, uh, the, the individual as a concrete temporal being not a fantastic one, not lost in Hegel's system, but as a concrete living individual. And that individual is called upon to make a decision which will affect the rest of his life in time as well as in eternity. And it's because man has the time to change and to grow that it's possible for a commandment to be addressed to him. Uh, in other words, yeah, that couldn't be done if you were already something unchanging. Uh, and so he says, man, man cannot be something eternal if what you mean by that is as if the eternal is positively opposed to temporality. Uh, the problem is, man can pretend to, to be eternal or pseudo-godlike in the form either of making himself a spectator, as if he's just watching history and not an actor in it, or by making himself part of the eternal already, part of the eternal unfolding process. He thinks Hegel is guilty of both of these. But the challenge of existential decision with consequences for eternity, uh, the challenge of existential decision of what Kierkegaard calls the either-or, does not exist for such a man if, you just, if you're just a spectator or if you're just already part of the eternal. Similarly, the ought can only function where the self is defined paradoxically as becoming but also eternal. Now here I would say, I would rather say immortal rather than internal to be technical, but he likes to use the word eternal. Uh, if the self were only becoming, if you were nothing but a flux, you see, there would be no person there to address with the thou shalt. See, if the self were just a flow of consciousness, there'd be no person to address. But if there were only a fixed self without change, there would be no freedom. And so the self, he says, involves a relationship to oneself. By that phrase, he always implies self-reflection, uh, self-control, uh, self-responsibility. Uh, and therefore, if the self always involves a relationship to oneself, there's room in that definition for a critique of whether the relationship to the self is what it ought to be. And it's because it's part of the very nature of the self to be grounded in the power which posited it, the self coming from God, that one can bring an ought into question here. He says the maturity of the self can only arise in relationship to the ought. In works of love, he says, it's characteristic of youth to say, I, I, and I. But the mark of maturity and the de dedication to the eternal is to will to understand that this I has no significance if it does not become the you to whom God speaks, the thou to whom the eternal incessantly speaks and says, you shall, you shall. But it's not only a question of maturity and awareness, but also of obligation. And so the thou shalt addresses itself to, to the man in despair over himself and makes his despair a sin when he realizes he ought to accept forgiveness in faith. And then if he refuses that, that's what makes it a sin. So he says, to be a self is eternity's demand on man. 
and he is obliged to accept himself in accepting the forgiveness of sin. And so this is the ought in relation to time and the self. Now the final topic here for the paper and for this section would be to compare the ethical and the religious ought. And to do this, we have to first discuss the problem of whether the ethical and religious stages in Kierkegaard are opposed to one another or in some way complementary. And all Kierkegaardian commentators you know, deal with this, Lowry, Dupree, Haker, Swinson. It's in fear and trembling that the greatest contrast between the ethical and the religious is drawn. With its concept of the teleological suspension of the ethical, it appears to make the religious not only a higher stage, but a dethronement or negation of the ethical, when Abraham is ordered to sacrifice the innocent Isaac. This seems to imply a kind of a voluntarism on, uh, in God or a nominalism about ethics that would unhinge morality from its roots in the nature of things and in human nature and in the divine nature. This would leave morality dependent only on God's arbitrary will. Then, if you, if you take that from Kierkegaard uh, and, and continue the thought, as Sartre does, by denying God, the consequence is there is no morality. However, several uh, considerations. First of all, it's, you know, Fear and Trembling was written under a pseudonym. And Kierkegaard has stated, both in Authority and Revelation and his book on the point of view of my work as an author, that none of the thoughts expressed in the pseudonymous works should be considered literally as his own thoughts. And so James Collins argues that Sartre's interpretation here is really illegitimate. Moreover, there is a world of difference between the ethical view of things in the pseudonymous works, especially the early ones, and especially Fear and Trembling, compared to Kierkegaard's later works, such as the Christian Discourses and Works of Love, which delineate a positive Christian ethics, in, with, in which ethics is not autonomous and therefore a possible obstacle to religion, as in Kant, but where ethics is an essential part of an existing religious life view. In fact, the idea of the night of faith, Kierkegaard's image for Abraham proceeding on in darkness in fear and trembling, a more radical presentation, that image rarely appears after fear and trembling. And even in that book itself, there are some lines of arguments which would contradict the notion that the teleological suspension of the ethical implies the dethronement of the ethical ought. In any case, the plight of Abraham is mentioned as an extraordinary exception. The main point of the presentation on Abraham, I believe, is to set in relief the existence of a personal religious call or ought, a unique call from God not deducible from a universal ethical norm. Now, Kierkegaard in his own time had to battle with the view that he meant to dethrone the ethical. In his book on Adler, now published as Authority and Revelation, he insisted that the omission of the ethical leads to an irresponsible aesthetical religiosity. And so the ethical ought, I would say, in a, 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 a more adequate interpretation of Kierkegaard, is a necessary dimension of and preparation for the religious stage. He presents this in the concluding unscientific postscript. And already there in the postscript he writes that though there are three divisions with the stages, there's nonetheless an either-or. He says the ethical and religious stages have in fact an essential relation to one another. And so I think you can justify in Kierkegaard the idea that the ethical ought stands. It continues in its validity. And yet that doesn't mean that it, it doesn't differ from the religious ought. I would say the religious ought differs in the four following uh, interrelated ways. Uh, first, the, the ethics of Kierkegaard, like that of Kant, is one of the individual standing before the universal moral law, which all human beings ought to obey. 
Uh, but Kierkegaard tries to bring out how the religious ought or the religious call uh, addresses each man as an individual person. There's still a certain universality in that each man ought to believe and convert in Kierkegaard's view. And true spirituality is to understand that this is the one thing needful. However, uh, the individual person uh, does not convert because it's a universal obligation, but because he, he ex experiences that he's uniquely called to do so by God in a personal way, in an I-thou relationship, in personal encounter. And so the, the call to conversion is in the, in the realm of the particular, like the call of the apostles or of the rich young man. And so that's a first distinction between the ethical and religious oughts. Secondly, a second differentiation concerns the relationship to the subject. Again, the religious ought is for thee, this person as an individual standing before God, whereas the moral ought appears uh, to the self regarded more as a member of the human race, uh, a humanitarian ethics, the individual standing before the universal moral law. And so in the ethical call to the universal, one also has the support or approval of others who acknowledge the universal. But with respect to an individual's conversion or other particular religious calls, it's each individual who must make that decision alone with and before God. Each one's path to God is unique, as is his call and vocation. The ethical is described then for Kierkegaard as a relation of mediacy in his language because the universal law uh, stands between God and man, not divorced, but between. Whereas the response to God religiously is what Kierkegaard calls a second immediacy. It's an I-thou relationship. And it should be noted that I-thou for Kierkegaard always means God calling man, God making demands on man not the soul being introduced to a state of mystical communion. Uh, and so God requires of us an absolute love and faith and obedience, but he does so as one person to another in faith directly, not just indirectly through the abstract universal law. Now a third difference between the ethical and religious ought involves the character of the obligation. No man is excused from his ethical duties. It's in no way positive if a man can't fulfill them in terms of the ethical stage. However, um, the valence changes a bit and mysteriously in the religious stage because it's the defeat of one's own efforts, the inability to make oneself acceptable to God by one's own striving that leads to conversion or to the positive response to the obligation to accept grace and the forgiveness of sins. This is where the phrase, oh, blessed fault, makes sense, you see. Um, of course, in both the ethical and religious stages, it's a sin not to accomplish what is due, and by making despair a sin against God whom we owe our trust to, Kierkegaard brings the religious stage definitely under the category of the obligatory. In other words, it's not as if religion would be something over and above one's ethical duty in the sense of something praiseworthy, but not obligatory. As Kierkegaard writes in Sickness Unto Death, there are very few men who live even only passably in the category of the spirit. Yea, there are not many even who merely an attempt, make an attempt at this life, and most of those who do so shy away. They have not learned to fear, they have not learned what must means, regardless of what it may be that comes to pass. Uh, nonetheless, it should not be concluded, and I'm almost concluded, uh, that Kierkegaard's theory of the obligation of conversion would lead to a predominance of the duty motif in the religious realm. In works of love, Kierkegaard very subtly reminds us that the commandment to love God and neighbor, given as a commandment, reveals a certain sadness that, that it should need to be command, commanded, you see. And so in Kierkegaard, there's always a progression from severity to mercy. 
Once the self has responded to the ought, it enters into the realm of love. And so he says in works of love, a man should love God in unconditional obedience and also love him in adoration. Finally, there's the question of the urgency of the ethical and the religious oughts. Because for Kierkegaard, conversion is the one thing always necessary. Uh, whereas ethical acts, ethical calls are manifold. Thus, the ought of conversion, that is the acceptance of redemption, the acceptance of the forgiveness of sins, which implies accepting that you're a sinner, um, that acceptance of redemption and forgiveness is the ultimate ought, which no ethical achievement could ever substitute for. Thus, when a person has failed to give the due response to every other ought, ethical or religious, he still ought to accept the forgiveness of sins. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.